we're continuing in our, in our sermon series through the Minor Prophets that we've been doing this fall. Um, we'll pick up in Haggai today. We have three more of these Minor Prophet sermons today, and then we have two more. And that'll lead us into our Advent season, which is going to be a wonderful season, a time of celebrating the coming of Christ, the coming of light into the world of hope, peace, and joy, and salvation in Jesus. And through that season, we're going to be looking at, um, at Isaiah 9-6, and we're going to be looking at how Jesus is indeed our wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He's, our ever, he's a part of our everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. And so we're going to be looking at that through the Advent season. So be looking forward to that and just want to let you know. But kind of thinking about the minor prophets, why have we been teaching through the minor prophets? And first off, it's because they're widely neglected. I mean, if you haven't been with us, probably you can tell us about Jonah. You might can quote Micah 6, 8. You might have heard of a few of them, but really we're not that familiar with the minor prophets. And so, we, so first off, because they're neglected, and then the reason that it's important is because they are part of the full counsel of God. They're part of his testament and his testimony of who he is and who we are. And, because, and so lastly, it's because the minor prophets are rich with truth. They're, they're, rich, they're rich with the truth of who God is, of who we are, and how God has always been faithful to keep his promises and how we are always in great need to that work from him. So it's been rich so far. I've been really grateful. So we're going to be in Haggai today. And this week, as I have spent time in Haggai, um, it's, it's interesting. I, I've been invited into a message that I know I need, but I also know that you need. Because I, I, I know that I find myself kind of saying some certain things and I hear the same things from all of us quite often. And for, the, for those who follow Christ, for the Christ follower, what I know is that there is a weariness that comes upon us. There is worry. And there is this tension of our lives because in the cause of Christ, the call of our lives, there are so many good things, and we have this collision of our temporal energy, our temporal time colliding with the eternal call in our lives that is never exhausted. It is never done, right, because it is at work in our midst. And so we have this tension where there are a myriad of good and important things in our lives, this, this eternal call, as well as the responsibilities of what it is to be alive. Some would call it adulting, right? Like it's just, I mean, someone yesterday, I was talking to them in kind of young 20s, and they said, you know, just one of the things that I've recognized is that being an adult is much harder than being a, a, a non-adult. <laughs> and I was like, there's a lot of wisdom in that. That's true. Like, you know, that's just like practical experience speaking, and they're starting to see that. But part of it is just like we have this eternal call as well as just this everyday reality of what is required of us to be responsible for blank, whatever that is. And so we're, we're, we're kind of constantly butting up against the end of our strength, the end of our time, the end of our energy, and yet endless opportunity. So when we think about this, we know that we're promised freedom and joy and peace, and yet it's so hard to experience the freedom and joy and peace because we often feel wiped out or guilty. And we're like, where is this promise that Christ has given? So there's a truth here for me today, a truth here for you today. If you're not a Christ follower, I'm sure that sounded familiar to you. 
you face the same things. You face the same pressures. You wrestle with your purpose. You wrestle with your significance. You wrestle with your freedom and autonomy. You wrestle with a sense of joy and meaning. So there's a truth here for you today as well. And a little bit of a spoiler alert, there is not a separate message for those who call on Christ, who follow him, and those who don't. Um, The opportunity is the same today. The promise and the truth that we will encounter is the one that is for all of us. And there's also this book, Haggai, also confronts one of the greatest difficulties for the church in America today. So there's a lot here. So how about we get to it, okay? I'm going to pray for us. Um, God, you are good. You are our eternal God, our sovereign Lord, the majestic one, the glorious one, the unending one, the omniscient one, the one who knows all and has a a never-ending strength and wisdom. Lord, you are also our heavenly Father that knows us and loves us, created us, Lord, for your holiness, for relationship, created us in your image, for your purpose, Lord, all of us. And so now we come before you, Lord, I pray right now that our hearts would be pliable. I pray, Lord, for a humility in our coming to you, God. I pray for a a hunger and an appetite for your truth right now. Lord, I pray that that your work will be complete. I pray that by the work of the Holy Spirit, you would take the words that pass through my lips and catch them aflame in our hearts, that we would be transformed and changed, that this world, as a result, would observe a witness of the work of Jesus. Lord, the one who promises to bring peace and wholeness and victory and redemption. Um, So God, work through me, work in spite of me, bring unity to those who are in Christ, bring freedom, salvation to those who are observing and questioning and seeking. And let us all find ourselves making the good confession that you are good, that you are strong, you are love, and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's just jump in to kind of get us going. Haggai 1.1 says this. Uh, By the way, sorry, let me just pause for a second. I meant to tell you to turn there earlier. Haggai, uh, we're going to be, it's kind of small, so let me help you out. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one near you on the floor there. If you're using one that has a black border, uh, it's page 673. If you're using the white one with blue letters, it's page 461. If you don't have a Bible at all, please take that. It's our gift to you. Feel free to even search around and find one that's less beat up if you want to. Okay, and uh, take that. That's our gift to you. Um, We'll also have all the text on the screens today. Uh, Because Haggai is shorter, we have the benefit of we get to actually read all of it. As we've been teaching through these minor prophets, we've had to kind of hopscotch through them because of length. But because this is the second shortest book after Obadiah in the Old Testament, we get to cover it all today. Uh, So um, hopefully you're there. Haggai 1.1. Here we go. Let's read this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So to kind of work through some background real quick, we see that the prophet that God's working through here is Haggai. And maybe you're sitting here thinking every time I've said that, you're like, Haggai. 
And you're like, and, and this is going to happen. But just so you know, it's tomato, tomato. Both are correct. Haggai, Haggai. This is a time where we get to practice some relativism, and it's not bad, like where you get to say the one you want. Okay, so I'm going to say Haggai. Don't let that be a distraction. If you need to translate it, feel free to say Haggai in your mind. They're both the same, and it's okay. Haggai was written around 520 B.C., um, but we're going to back up a bit before we kind of come into that full swing. So just to kind of catch us through some history, as we have been working through the minor prophets, we've been looking at those that were prophesying during the time pre-exile, during the time before the people of Israel, specifically of Jerusalem, were taken captive. But in 586, that finally happened. So again, we're kind of in 520 here, but in 586, Jerusalem fell. All right, the Babylonians came in, they conquered, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the walls, and they took most of them captive and took them about 900 miles east to Babylon where they lived as exiles in Babylon. And they were there, they were there for a while, and then eventually the Persians, the Medo-Persians come in and they conquer under King Cyrus. They conquer Babylon. So now Babylon is ruled by the Persians, and that happened in 538. So we had exile, 586, now we have we have the defeat of Babylon in 538, and Cyrus immediately makes a decree to release Israel, not to be free, but to be under their ruling as a state to go back to Israel in hopes that they will go and kind of populate and work and be a benefit to them. Some stay, but, and some go back to Jerusalem. So again, they're not totally free. They're under the rule of the Persians, but they get to go back. And Cyrus has this philosophy that happy subjects make better subjects. And so he says, hey, I'm going to pass a degree, decree that you can go ahead and reestablish your religious system. Because, again, what does it matter? They're pluralists. They have a bunch of gods. What's one more? And if it makes them happy, hey, they, they did good while they were in our midst. Let's let them go back and do their thing, and they'll keep doing good. And then they'll be happy, and they'll keep returning our return to us. So he says, hey, go and build the temple. And by about 536, there's about 50,000 Jews back in Jerusalem, and they're working to rebuild the temple. To be specific, they've kind of, they've laid the cornerstone. But then it got hard. So we're going to kind of, this brings us up to where we are. We're in Haggai. He says, the second year of King Darius, after Cyrus, his son ruled, but then he died. And now Darius comes in as the next Persian king and takes over in 522. This all matters, I promise. Okay, and so now Haggai is in 520, second year of King Darius. So I said a minute ago that it's written around 520. We can get really, you'll see, we get to be really specific about the dates of what's happening but it was written, it's not necessarily mean it was written right then. It could have been written within a couple years. But it was written close to 520, but it's looking at 520. So now it's 520 is 18 years after the Jews returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. And Darius, once again, a pagan king has said, hey, go and rebuild your temple. The first one didn't work, so let's do it again. So there's two cool things about Haggai. First is we can get real exact about the dates, as I said, and we can do that even to our dating system by overlaying what we know about their calendar over the, the, the Roman calendar that we use. So everything that takes place that we're reading today in Haggai, Haggai or Haggai for those of you, uh, for, happens between August 29th, 520 B.C., in December 18th, 520 B.C., kind of a cool thing to me. Because often we're kind of like, eh, maybe this, maybe that. You know, it's close to here. We get to know, like, this happened in this, like, four-month span. 
August 29th to December 18th to 520. The second thing that's cool is that the outline's really easy for Haggai because he gave four sermons, and that's our outline. So today we're going to take time, the rest of our time, to work through these four sermons from Haggai. And I want to go ahead and give you a heads up now that you're going to notice when I get through with the first sermon, you're going to be like, it's time for lunch. And, and not literally, but close. And just know that the first sermon is the bulk of our time, and we'll move pretty quickly through the second, third, and fourth sermon. So don't freak out, okay? So we're going to spend a lot of time in the first sermon. So let's look at the first sermon from God through Haggai. And we see that in Haggai 1, 2 through 11. Let me read that for us. It's going to be on your screen as well. Um, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. By the way, these people are the people of Israel, the Jews in Jerusalem. It says, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called you, called for a drought on the land, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So what is happening here? So just as every sermon intends to do, it intends to address a problem. And the problem that we see being addressed by God through Haggai is, we, is in verses 2 through 4, kind of the second part of 9 shows this. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And by the way, paneled houses is this, it's this statement of completion. Like, hey, you yourselves are dwelling in your houses that are all good. They're taken care of. You've, you've done that. And then he says in the second part of 9, he says, you know, you see that my house lies in ruins while you have busied yourself with your own house. So I want, to, I want us to make sure to kind of connect with the full picture here. Because we can quickly jump to like some, some beating ourselves up here. Kind of to the, to the confrontational truth that we're invited into. But these people that are being addressed here just a couple years, just you know, 18 years after returning, these are the people that endured exile. They endured captivity. And by the way, it wasn't that they were living in these horrible conditions. They were able to make a life for themselves. Jeremiah exhorted them. He said, hey, live for the benefit of your city of exile because it, as it goes good for them, it goes good for you. And also, and like in that, you get to be a witness of who I am even in exile. And so they've made a life for themselves. 
And again, there, there are a few people that were probably alive before they were exiled, but most of these people that are being addressed were born there. That's all they've known. But they have heard of their home. They've heard of their place, of who they were and who they belonged to and, and, and their identity. And so they've endured this, and then they returned as a faithful people. They had a life. Yes, they were exiles, but they had a life. But they returned because of their understanding of God's purpose, their God's statement of who they were, and they returned out of that faithfulness. It wasn't an easy choice. Because to think what they left, they came back to nothing. They came back to a place where there were no walls, there was no temple. Again, all of their kind of place of belonging and identity was gone. And don't forget, they had begun the work. They had laid the cornerstone, but then opposition came. Opposition came from outside and from inside. There were tribes attacking. There, were also, there was also grumbling from their own. And if you want to read the accounts of that, go to Ezra 4, and you can read that yourself. But they just, they kind of gave up, and they went and said, well, this is too difficult, so we're going to go and take care of ourselves. So now here we are, stand still for 16 years, and they responded in obedience first, but then life got hard and they turned inward, taking care of themselves instead of what God had given them to be and to do. So this brings us to one of the greatest needs or, or even the greatest threats in the American church today. And one of our biggest questions as well as we try personally to live, un to live our faithful lives unto God. And so the biggest need... Well, the biggest threat for the American church today is consumerism. And, we'll, and I'm going to flesh that out in just a second. And our greatest need for us personally as we pursue these lives unto God is, is to answer this question of how do we do this without growing weary, without growing exhausted, without growing fearful when I am only human? How do I know I'm doing enough? How does grace work into all this? How do I pursue my kingdom responsibilities as well as my life responsibilities? Right? So first off, let's tackle consumerism real quick, real quick. <laughs> um, you know, it's easy to spot the blatant kind of consumer posture, and it's, it's the one that trends more towards materialism, that just it has this voracious desire for more. And that is certainly consumerism. It is the, the full extent of it to where, like, I am only at peace. I am only satisfied. I only have worth if I have everything that I say I want. That's the, that's the blatant form of it that's way more easy to recognize. But the, here's the difficult thing about consumerism, consumerism, which I've heard it kind of described this way. And to think about it, it is just as destructive, if not more destructive, uh, in its subtle form than it is in its blatant form, because in its subtle form, we allow it to kind of exist in our own hearts and in our midst, and we even justify it. And so as we kind of try to think about consumerism itself and, and our opportunity there and the rest of what we have, it, it's going to take a lot of humility for us to wade into these waters. Because even think about the people being confronted, they, they responded in faithfulness and obedience, and now they find themselves here. So it's going to take humility to venture into these waters. And, and you know, speaking, speaking of water, um, I've kind of heard consumerism kind of described this way in, in America. Like to, it, it, it is said that detecting 
consumerism in our time in the American church is like a fish detecting that it is in water. It's just such a way of life. Like, to think that, like, what we have, what our, what our circumstances are, are what determines our worth, our peace, our goodness. Ed Stetzer uh, says this of consumerism. He says, first, consumerism reduces God from a deity to a commodity. His value, like everything else, is determined by his usefulness to the user, i.e. the Christian. In consumerism, personal desires and their fulfillment are paramount. Therefore, everything and everyone, including God, exists to satisfy these cravings. This is precisely the opposite of what Scripture teaches. We are called to live in submission to God and walk humbly with Him. Consumerism, however, reduces God so that He becomes a means to an end. He is presented as a useful tool tool that supplies us with our desires and expectations. As one sociologist noted, in our consumer culture, we have come to view God as part cosmic therapist and part divine butler. So this is exactly what we see here in Haggai. The people had responded in understanding who they were, and yet when it became uncomfortable and difficult, they turned to an inward-focused source of peace and comfort, and they went and made their own peace and comfort instead of remembering God's purposes. So what was God's purpose? It was that they go and, and restore their, their land of possession and in that restoring the temple. Why was the temple so important for them? Why is this held up as this beacon of purpose? Why are they now being called to the carpet over their inaction over this? Hey, they laid the cornerstone, which is the most important one. Can't we just make that a monument? Why are they being confronted? So first off, just quickly, when we think about the temple, first it's about obedience. And man, there's a funny world going on about in the Christian kind of conversation about obedience. And somehow we have diminished obedience as kind of this legalistic thing. But our joyful kind of surrender and submission to obedience is an act of identity. Because, it, because of who we are under God as his creation, as his image bearers, and as, restore, as those restored in Christ, those who love him obey his commands. Those who know him do this. And so obedience, certainly we can, we can diminish it and devalue it down into this checkbox of things that we do. But that is such a far miss of God's promise of his command for your life. Because it is, what, it is what helps us to understand him, his will and his commands, reveals his very character and personhood, and it brings us into living out his will in this life, which is our greatest purpose and satisfaction. And so first off, it's about obedience. The people of Israel were meant to be a people unto God. They were worshipers of the one true God. The, the temple was the place where they came to worship and to make their sacrifices unto God. Secondly, the temple was a sign of the covenant, was a sign of them being a people bound to God, because third, the temple symbolized and was the place that God's presence dwelt. It was the place that they communed with God, that they came and that his holiness was there. And fourth, we see it here in verse 8, it is so that God would be glorified. 
so that God would be glorified because why? They were meant to be a witness to the world around them. Them being God's chosen set-apart people was not a place of privilege but of purpose. As they were blessed, they were meant to be a blessing into the entire world. Yes, the people of Israel were set apart, but it was so that all of the nations would know the one true God. And so they were meant to be a witness to the world around. And you see over and over again this cry of like, God, uphold your people because we don't want it to be missed of who you are. And so what the world would see and they would think is this, no temple, no God. No temple, no God. And so God says, I want to be glorified through you. I want to be glorified by this, by this witness that comes through this. Unfortunately, this passage has been misused for building campaigns over and over again for pastors to guilt their, their communities into prioritizing giving so we can build. That is such a far miss of the opportunity here. It is that because what we know is that now in Christ, he has come and tabernacled among us. And this is where we're going to end up today. But that we see that the temple is much more than just one spot and one place and one time. It is that Jesus has come and incarnated in us and in our lives are the place where God's glory dwells and shines and, that the, and we are meant to be a light in this world and Jesus, is the presence of God is in us because of Christ. So we see that's why this is important. We also see in verse 8 that God, he wanted this to be, to be glorified, but also because he wanted to take pleasure in being their first priority. And yet they believed that somehow there was a greater rest and satisfaction and the comfort that they could make with their hands. They prioritized their little worlds, their little kingdom, their little home over God's whole created world, God's kingdom, and his house. This teaching here relates to the parable, to the parable of the seeds that Jesus gave. And as we see one of the seeds is the seed that fell among the thorns and the weeds. And it says, as it fell among them, it, it, it grew up, but then the thorns and the thistles and the weeds came and it strangled it out and strangled the life out of it. And then he goes to explain it later in, in Matthew 13. And in Matthew 13, 22, he says, what I'm talking about when I say this, that seed that grew up and was strangled out by the weeds and the thorns, it is the one where the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the words and proves unfruitful. And so we see this kind of case building of like, if you define your goodness, if you define God's, God's goodness, if you define your satisfaction, if you define your, your peace on, on your circumstances, on what you have on your little world, you're going to find yourself here. This is exactly what we do. And I say we because I say it all the time. As I said, I hear it all the time. We are, are in a different age. We're in the age where Christ has come. But the call, the command is the same. We are still to be about the temple work, where we come and offer sacrifices to God, where we experience, where we experience the presence of God. We are still to be about gathering together as the people of God to be, to be strengthened, to build each other up, to care for one another so that we could be a light and witness to the world. God's purposes, promises, and commands for us are to be people that live in this communion with him.
commune with one another, living out our identity. It is as we pursue a relationship with him in prayer and in devotion and time in the word, and it's as we pursue this as the people of God, the church, called together, committing ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, that we, we see this call to live, prioritizing the commands and purposes of God for us. So what's being confronted? What's the posture or the thought of the people in Jerusalem? What did they say? They said, it's not yet time. It's not yet time to rebuild this house. We have other things that are more pressing. And I thought about this, and it's, it's something that Amber and I, my wife and I, talk about in, in recently in kind of raising our kids and how, you know, our kids are about, to, one's about to be nine in a month, the other one's seven and a half. So they have a view of what the world should be. They have desires more and more and more. They have things they want. And they come to us and they say, can we do this? Will we be able to do that? And because we've been through it enough, we know that what ensues if we give a definitive no is an argument. Or my, my son is a master salesman. He, has, he knows how to come from every different angle. My daughter is a master negotiator where she, she just does this thing where, like, she's already won. And, like, it doesn't matter what you say. She's already won. Like, there is no, there's no need for logical arguments for her because there's just no argument. It's just her way, and she wins, and she speaks it into being. Like, she's just amazing like that. And so, like, for us, we have found ourselves, instead of giving a clear no, we say stuff like, not yet, maybe, I don't know, go ask your mom. You know, like, that's like, that's, that's kind of our tactic when really what we're saying, and this is really what's being confronted here, is that in the hearts of the people, what we kind of call this, like, I'm still being faithful, just not yet. It is actually rebellion. It's actually disobedience. It's actually I have no intent because my needs, my desires are always in this posture are always going to trump this purpose in my life. And so, again, when I say this is a call for humility, a call for a prayer of, like, God, soften our hearts because this is tough, that's what I'm talking about. And so that's what they said. They've said not yet, and because it's being confronted so strong, we know that the, really the posture of their hearts is like, no, God, I desire my things more than your things, my priorities over your priorities. And we ourselves find ourselves saying not yet all the time. Oh, I was af I'm afraid of this message, like literally, like for personally, because I mean, like, I just, this is, this is personal, and then also, like, walking alongside of people that I love and that I want to give grace to all the time, we're always butting against the demands of our life. After this season, I'll make more time. Make more time for blank. Make more time for the Lord in prayer and devotion, time in the word. And I think it's astounding how often we, we, we process that as this kind of obligational demand in our life. So when we say that, we're actually just trying to measure up. We're just trying to avoid guilt as opposed to hearing the invitation of the one true God saying, come and, come and commune with me. Come have fellowship with me. And so we say not yet to just that very personal opportunity we have with the living God through Jesus. But then also we see that our purpose goes beyond us and it goes, beyond, it goes to us, right? From me to us. And we have a, a collective call in our life. We are a people. And part of God's identity, part of God's call on your life is that this would be equally a priority for you. 
that you would be a temple builder, which again, where does the presence of God dwell? In his people. What is the church? His people called by Jesus, set apart for him, sinners made saints. So here we see it once again. We end up saying, not yet. I'll, I'll get back to community after this. I'll, I'll serve, whether it's the family of God or the world, after. I'll, 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 I'll use my leadership opportunity and gifting after this. I'll share my life and my gifts for the sake of those around me after this. And, and let's just get specific. Like there are very legitimate needs that fill in the blanks. I have a new baby. I mean, we all know if you've had a baby, it's a life wrecker. It takes over. Like you are not human for a few months. You're not sleeping. You're not thinking straight. You're, you're like brushing your teeth with, with Comet. I don't know. Like it's just uh, Comet's an abrasive cleaner for toilets, okay? Like <laughs> it just like new babies, new spouses, new houses, new jobs, new transitions, family dynamics, emotional states, mental states, physical states, all of those things. I can look around the room, I can look in the mirror, and I see every one of those legitimately represented. And yet, because who we are is identity and not activity, it doesn't cease. So our opportunity is to think, okay, but how? What in the world are we supposed to do because I am legitimately out of time? I'm legitimately out of energy. I'm legitimately out of emotions and care for anyone else. I can't imagine thinking of something else besides out of my world. I mean, like, Amber and I had this conversation just this week. It's like, I am hanging on for dear life in my life. How in the world could I care about anyone else's life? That's our words. So it's real, right? And so... Like, that's, that's this moment. So don't make a mistake here and think about this. of like, okay, let's just now, let's just buck up and pull up our boots or whatever. And like, let's just ignore ourselves and go work until we're dead. Like, that's not God's. God's more concerned with our hearts than our work. But our hearts belonging to him lead us to keep his commandments and living out what it is to be a part of his family. I mean, think about this. It is, a, it is an identity, a familial identity. Why do so many moms and dads, as their kids grow up, say, why do you never call and you never write? We're in Texas, so they don't say it that way, but that's the personification of what we all want to know. Like, why don't you call, why don't you write, or whatever, right? Like, but we hear that, and it's because they, because intrinsically, intuitively, we know that fam being family, belonging doesn't cease based on busyness. And so when we see our young adults in our lives, I mean, I went a whole summer without calling either one of my parents. And they, I mean, like, I, you thought I stabbed them. Like, they let me know. And like, and this, but because busyness doesn't eliminate the reality of what it is to belong. And God has made us belong. We're, we're tracking. We're still in the first sermon. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting here. Like, if you've, if you've been in the Minor Prophets, if you've been tracking with us, every single one of them, and they are, they are confronting some really horrible, drastic things. 
They're addressing just first off idolatry. They're addressing foreign gods. They're addressing abuse of power. They're addressing oppression of the weak. They're addressing prostitution. They're addressing horrible things that the people of God are doing. And over and over again, God's calling them to the carpet. He's calling them to repentance so that they can be restored into his people, into living out who they're meant to be. That's not happening here. What's being addressed? A self-centric view of life. Let's take it a couple of steps. A self-centered view of life. A selfish view of life and existence. But we have to remember our life is not our own. It's bought with a price. So what do we do with that? In verses 5 through 6 and 9 through 11, it says that the good things Uh, It says that they did good things, they were doing responsible things, but they did not satisfy. All those pictures of like, you did this, but got less return than you should have. (coughs) Excuse me, all those pictures and metaphors, those were literal. So here in context of what's being addressed here, it is quite literal. God is saying like, hey, just like I've done before, I am thwarting your work, so hopefully you will return to me. I am bringing less return for your investment so that you will return to me. Quite literally here. For us, let's make sure to see this. What's being said, what we see, the opportunity for us is is that we will never find satisfaction when we work as our own refuge in peace. We will never find satisfaction when it is all about the work of our hands and all about what we can control. So the instruction here is to consider your ways and consider God's ways. Your ways result in futility. Your ways result in in emptiness. Your ways result in not actually experiencing what you think you're pursuing. My ways, God's ways, is that you actually experience refuge, strength, what it is to be redeemed and restored. You experience a source of sufficiency and rest and hope. And what we, what we see is that everything we can ever need, God satisfies. And he's done that in Jesus, which we're going to unpack that as we close in just a few minutes. It is not that God is not concerned with your rest. You are not just a tool for him to just use up and discard when he's done with you. It is that he promises to satisfy and be all that you need. Notice the response of the people in verses 12 through 15. Let's read that quickly. It says, Then then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the the voice of the Lord their God in in the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Okay, so we're going to pick up the pace. So what we see here, it is now September 21st, 520. It's just over three weeks later. What did they do? Praise God. Like This is what we all want to see. They responded in obedience and faithfulness. They got to work. They saw that God was who he is. They feared him. They were in awe of him, and they responded rightly. God promised to give them what they need. And how did he say he was going to do that? There was this promise. I 
will be with you. He's the sustainer, the satisfier. God promises that his word, his promises will not return void. We see that happening here, and we have that opportunity all the time. So just a quick, faithful, commercial break and caveat for all of us. This is specifically to those who would be a part of a church, the people of God, those calling on Christ. Take advantage of the times where the word is proclaimed. The word of God is effective and active. We have opportunities, first off, personally, in our time. Prioritize that time. Make time to be in the Word. Come to it expectantly. Come, and then, again, in your personal relationships, those personal discipling relationships, let the Word that dwells in you richly come and be a gift in that time and come to it expectantly. In your transformation groups, in this time on Sunday, wherever it is, come with an active pursuit, not a passive posture. Come in not to worship, but as a worshiper. To whatever moment it is. That's our opportunity with the living God. And so come in and be expectant as we, as we engage a living God as his people. Who he has given his word and made himself known. And I just want to ask, are you praying for a soft heart when you hear the word of God? Are we seeing the need for humility because what he has is better? Okay, Sermon 2 comes on the 21st day of the seventh month. That's October 17th, right? So just a month later, not even a month later. This is 2, 1 through 10. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, <coughs> to Joshua, excuse me, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. This is a fun little fact. If you notice, the first sermon was just to the leaders. Now it's to everybody. He's brought in the remnant as well. He says, say this, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, <coughs> all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of his house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in his place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So what's happening, right? So what we know is they've gotten to work. They're working, they're, they're at the work of building the temple. About a month has gone by. And what do we see? He says, hey, I know you're looking around and you're like, man, this, is, this isn't that glorious. This isn't that impressive. And he's saying like, it's, and we see that they're getting discouraged. It's not going the way they expect. It's, they're not getting, it doesn't seem to be paying off yet. I mean, just a month goes by. It took years. Now they're like, oh, it's been a month. But, what are they? but that's what's being confronted. So they're discouraged even in their work of obedience. And what is God's response? He says, be strong. And he says, work. See that in verse 4. He says, endure. 
endure, persevere, stay focused on what I've called you to do, uh, what I've called you to, and you can do so because why? Did you see why they can do that? We've already, we've already foreshadowed this. What does he say? He says, for I am with you. I am with you. So this completes and reinforces what was already said in the first sermon. We can persevere and we can know joy and rest and peace in the midst of our enduring work because God is with us. We disengage because we functionally don't believe that God satisfies. <coughs> we functionally don't believe that he is the sufficient one. We functionally don't believe that we are whole and restored and that he is faithful so therefore, we disengage because all of a sudden, we've got to go and take this into our own hands. We take it into our own hands to be our rest makers, to be our own peace givers, to be our own refuge builders, to be our own safe places. There are two sides of this teaching, work, because I am with you. And for me, <coughs> the one I struggle with is the latter, for I am with you. I struggle to trust God that he is with me. I, tr I struggle to trust that he is the one who satisfies and that he is the sufficient one. And what that results in is a guy who overstrives, a guy who works tirelessly without any sense of peace. I hit that wall all the time of discouragement and just exasperation. And it's because I forget that he is with me. The other side is to work. And for others, instead of just putting their head down and taking it on their hands, in their pursuit of comfort and rest, they become passive about the things of God. And so for you, you need the charge to work in the midst of your need. And you can do that because you can experience the riches of God's sustaining grace. It's actually by not disconnecting, by staying in the purpose of God, that we actually experience his grace and his love all the more. We struggle with faithfulness. God never does. If you live a life based on the blessings of your strength, it's exactly what you're going to experience, the blessings of your strength or the lack thereof. But God's promise is that, is, is that he is with you. And when you walk by faith and live in joyful obedience, you will experience the blessings of God's strength and communion. This is, is the key. There isn't this separation of eternal purpose in realities and responsibilities of life. They are one and the same. The opportunity and the invitation is that as you are, be about the priorities of God. We must cling to the reality that God sent his holy son Jesus to satisfy every need in you. So as you work, you trust that he is with you. As you are in need, you bring it to the light, to him and to the body of Christ around you. And you allow God to work through his truth, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the body of Christ to come alongside you. And we all continue together. You're not in this alone. We bear the weight of family joyfully. And I'm going to 
jump to the last two sermons here. And these last two sermons come on the same day. It's the 24th day of the ninth month. It's December 18th, 520. Right? So we started back in August. Now we're December. Let's read uh, 2, 10 through 23. It says, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. No, it does not. The holy do not make the defiled holy by touching. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any, any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered, yes. So the defiled touching makes unclean. It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, at what they offer, there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hell. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord, nor the same. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. Let's read the last part of this sermon. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai in the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay, there's a lot there, but we're going to pack it really fast. So what's happening? So the people are working. They think, they think, you know, they're, they're, they're thinking that as they're working, because we're working on the temple, we must be good. And God's saying, no, 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 it's not your work. It's me. He says, you know, in case you're thinking your work makes you good, God's making abundantly clear that's not the case, which, again, should be a voice of grace to you right now. It's not our work but our hearts that he's concerned. How do we know this? Because he goes through this exposition of, of defilement and holiness. And just to real quickly try to lay out some, some kind of context in Old Testament kind of workings, back in that day, a holy, the holy things, touching an unholy thing, did not make it holy. A defiled thing touching anything made it defiled, right? And so we see, he's saying, is your work making this holy? No, your work is not making it holy. And he says, you know, like you're doing this work, and you're thinking, he says, like, is the seed yet in the barn? He's like, no, my, my greater work is yet to come. And so we see this kind of momentum building to something in the future, we see this momentum building to this greater restoration, this greater fellowship. 
Because here's the reality. Because when we see this promise, this kind of weird little thing with Zerubbabel and like this signet ring thing, what we're pointing to is the Messiah. And this isn't the first time we've gotten this Messiahship moment. When we see these proclamations of all the nations coming in, that's a picture of completed restoration. That's a picture of God's, God's blessing and restoration going beyond just the people of God to all people, the fulfillment in Jesus. And so what we know about Zerubbabel is that we see in Matthew that Jesus is part of his lineage. And what we know is that his grandfather, the signet ring was taken from him. God says, I will take it from you, symbolizing that I am not with you. And now he gives this promise of, of, restore, of restoration. And so we see it playing forward. And so this is this promise of the Messiah because what once was where the defiled made all unthings defiled, we see Jesus, the Holy One, came in to make us the defiled ones holy and righteous. He who, the, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we see this, this picture of the fulfillment of promise in the Messiah. And that is our promise. So as we, as we strive today, as we work today, there is a call and an ex expectation on your life that does not cease because it is part of who you are. It's part of your identity. It's part of belonging to the family of God. And yet we are not here trying to mitigate our priorities of like, okay, how much kingdom stuff do I do versus how much personal stuff? They are all overlapped. And God says, you can continue in obedience, you can continue to work, because I satisfy, and I do that by the completed work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. That you are not bound and, and condemned by sin any longer, but if you have confessed and believed Jesus is Lord, you are made righteous and whole. You are restored people, you are mine. And your purpose prevails wherever you are. And I was talking to a friend this week um, over, he was, he was really burdened over him. Like he felt like he got out of hand at his kid's Little League football game. And he's a leader in ministry. And he was just like, I, I just feel horrible. And we were talking about how like we grew up in the church. And the, our understanding was that our witness was so fragile. Like our witness was only intact if we were indeed as holy as Jesus. But the beautiful witness of the gospel of Jesus is the, is the witness of grace working in our lives. So in all of our frailties and all of our ins and outs of life and demands, we get, to, we get to live earnestly and openly because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we get to live as the family of God where when, when we grow weary, we get to stay on task because we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses that have gone before us and that are with us. I think about conversations that I've had with people in our church, and I'm like, you know, what if we're not just doing something organizationally? What if we are in this eternal call in our lives that's unending, and we get to just serve with joy, and we get to offer our lives with joy, and when we grow weary, we get to look to our left and our right and say, I am weary. Can I lean on you? And we get to carry each other along and continue in obedience because we are a people, not just a person. So that is the promise we see here. It is a promise made possible, fulfilled, and sustained by the work of Jesus, the grace of God, and the gospel. And it's one that is, it is, it is eternal, it is right here, and it is yet to come. So we have to see that God's promise and his purpose prevails because of who he is and who we've been created to be. And there is a part that is certainly his part. He is the faithful one. He is the one who is strong. He is the one who accomplishes his work. But yet we have a part offering our lives in season and out because he is our sustainer and he is the one who satisfies. 
we cannot be our own saviors, our own sovereigns. We cannot turn to any other human for that either. The promise is that he sustains because he is with us. So I encourage all of us to pray for humility. Pray for humility daily. God, man, it's sneaky how this comes in on us. It sounds noble to say, I deserve this. I'm going to go do some self-care and check out for a while. I'll be back when it's better. The opportunity is to bring it to the throne of grace, to do it together, to continue walking in obedience, experiencing the sustaining work of God in Christ. So God's part, our part, pray for humility. Offer your lives in obedience to God as an offering and as a temple where the presence of God dwells, where Jesus has come and take up residence in the Holy Spirit and let him take pleasure in your life, being glorified. Trusting God and his grace to sustain you and give you rest as you prioritize what he says is important. Fellowship with him. Fellowship with the body of Christ and building it up through your giftedness. Gospel mission in the world, all while resting in him. It all comes down to the same thing for all of us, Christ follower, non-Christ followers. Do you trust the work God has done in Jesus? Thank you for hanging with me. Let's pray. God, so much there, so much more we could dig into, but I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your sustaining presence. Lord, that you promise that you are with us. Lord, we are human. We meet the end of ourselves quite often. We have legitimate needs in our life. Lord, protect us from guilt and shame that has no place in the gospel of Jesus. Protect us from passivity and self-sovereignty and self-saviouring. <laughs> Lord, as, as we kind of think that it's our place to make our own place of peace or refuge or worth. Lord, let us find ourselves falling deeper into the truth of the mystery that you are our sustainer in all things. So God, we love you. We surrender to you. Work in our hearts. Continue as we come to the table. In Jesus' name.